You are listening to Proudly Resents. Oh, reason. I, I can't even I hear you. Well. Hi, this is Sammy Wazell. Uh, proudly Resents. The Cult Movie Podcast. The Adam Biggest Men Show. To all you Proudly Resents listeners out there, just remember, you can't touch on hospitality. How about Welcome to a special joint episode of the Projection Booth and proudly resents two famous, infamous, infamous. pot, <laughs> yes, cult podcasts or pot cult casts. I don't know what the hell I was saying there. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me is the other host, Mr. Adam Spiegelman. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me on your show and thanks for being on my show at the same time. This is so weird. This is epic. Things are going to change. I feel like Seth Brundle. I'm in like two places at once. <laughs> I wish I was nerdy enough to know what that meant. Okay. I lost all credibility. Sorry, <laughs> listeners. And it's okay. It's <laughs> we all right. Turning off. But your show is, it's good because it's the number one and number two favorite shows. Yours is my number one favorite show and mine is my number two and that's only because I know the host. <laughs> and, and all of the skeletons in the closet. I don't know. Where, tell me where you're recording from. Where exactly are you? I record always down in my basement. It's not my mother's basement, but I actually own the house, so it's my basement. Your mom's and upstairs cooking. Exactly. Uh, I'm. Uh, I just bought a house with my wife and daughter, and I thought, oh, this is great. You know, more spaces to uh, to record. And I'm recording in our closet in our in our uh, bedroom, which is the best sound. But it's right against the kitchen, and they're cooking, and my baby's screaming, play, oh. playing and screaming. So. I went to the other side to my bed, and I put a blanket over the bed so the my voice won't rattle too much. And now my cat has come in here because she thinks it's fun. So she's purring. So you might hear a purring cat, and you might hear a screaming baby. But it's a fun scream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. One of those, like, hey, I'm testing out my vocal cords now kind of thing. <laughs> yes. These kids need a lot of work, Mike. You never told me. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm just finding that out myself. I'm only just a few months ahead of you, I think. I, my granddaughter's uh, like turning 19 months coming up here. So so you have a granddaughter without having a kid. Exactly. Oh, you got all the good parts. Oh, exactly. <laughs> I get to spoil the shit out of this kid. That's great. We are on this very special episode of the Projection Booth Proudly Resents and looking at the 2016 documentary Room Full of Spoons by Rick Harper. Uh, it is a look at one of the most captivatingly bad films that has ever broken into popular culture, The Room, of course. And it is also kind of a story of the making of The Room as well as the making of Room Full of Spoons itself. So it's kind of a, a two for one here. It makes sense. Like it, it isn't jarring that he changes from one to the other. Right. No, it flows really well, really well. And I was glad that he kind of weaves his own story in throughout. So it's not just like, okay, and now I'm going to tell you about the making of the documentary, like an hour and a half in. He really kind of keeps the story, everything moving at the same pace and doesn't just like, yeah, just suddenly like, okay, now we're shifting gears. It just moves together really well, really well edited film. Yeah, he does a great job. He obviously worked on it really hard for a long time. 
Yeah, it's the passion for not only the room, but also for this project itself definitely comes through. And I was really glad to see that because I was like, oh, man, this could have gone really bad, really fast. And, you know, it, I, I was really afraid to put it on because I've been talking with, with Rick through Facebook for probably over a year. And it was like, I can't wait to see this movie. I really want to talk with you when it's out. And then when he finally sent the link for me to see it, I was just like, Oh boy, you know, cause some of these can go really wrong, really fast, but I was very pleasantly surprised so much so that I watched the documentary start to finish and then watched it again two weeks later being tonight, start to finish. And I was like, all right, perfect cut and go. Yeah. I thought it was, um, I thought it was really good as well. I mean, for somebody who's obsessed with the movie as myself, when I when I met him online, he wrote me about helping promote the film. Yeah, I I, I was weary. I didn't know how good it was going to be. You know that it, it, that would be so good because you you never know. I mean, a lot of times, especially since it took so long. And full disclosure, back in my mind, I don't know if you too, but I was like, I've always wanted to make a documentary about this movie, and so there was a little bit of not jealousy, but like, oh, let's see what this guy did. Even though he did it, you know, that kind of like, oh, I could have done better, even though I never would have done it. Well, you've kind of done some of the legwork here. You've done a lot of interviews with people that were involved with The Room, and that's where I kind of became more familiar with The Room. Like, of course, I've seen the movie, I listened to the riff tracks, those kind of things, but actually getting to know the behind the scenes, other than when The Disaster Artist came out, I didn't know anything about the actual making of the movie, other than listening to the interviews that you've done on your show. It's fascinating. Yeah, I was so obsessed with it. And then uh, Entertainment Weekly, they interviewed a guy who claims that he directed The Room. So uh, I was working on a talk show at the time, and I challenged the guy to find him. I didn't find him myself. So we found him, and I, one of them I went to college with a mutual friend, and he agreed to do the interview. And it's really a fascinating interview. If I can plug uh, I Directed The Room on Proudly Resents, we'll link to it. But he tells all the cool stories, whether or not you believe he directed it or not, he tells all these great stories and answers questions like, why is there a TV facing the wall? <laughs> and uh, he says, because you can see the camera in the TV, in the reflection of the TV, so I just turned it around. Now, is that Sh- Sandy Schlar? Yeah, Sandy Schlar. He, which is so funny, and especially in the movie, he's in there a lot, and he, it's so funny. He tells the story exactly the same way he does on my podcast. You know, the <laughs> intonations. And I was sitting with him on the set of, like, Teenage Ninjas or something. It's a show on, um, on uh, I don't know, ABC Family at the time. But it was a kid show, and he was a script supervisor. And during the lunch, he had me sit with him on set. And the sound operator recorded it for us. But he, um, so, yeah, it was just great to hear him tell all these great stories about the thing. But, oh, the fact that he wants credit for directing the world's worst film is fascinating. Yeah. And he talks about that in the movie. And and it took a little while for that to even come out, because I remember seeing The Room, like, a while before I saw the headline on your, your Facebook feed, and I was just like, somebody's trying to take credit for this? What kind of goofy thing is this? Because it's like, you know, whenever a big movie comes out, it seems like there's going to be maybe two years hence, or maybe right around the time of it coming out, going to be the, well, this sounds exactly like my screenplay, and I'm suing this guy kind of thing. And it's just like, you know, the when The Hateful, came, uh, Hateful Eight came out, it was, oh, well, I wrote this thing that is exactly Django, blah, 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 Django Unchained. 
And it's like, okay, why now? I mean, it, it almost seems like you're helping promote the other movie, or and, and there's just all those that question, like, why now? Why so many years after the room is this guy? coming forward and saying that he directed this. And yeah, why is he trying to take credit for one of the worst movies ever made? You would think that he would be absolutely fine giving Wizzo the whole enchilada with that. You know, his success has many fathers. I think if the movie wasn't such a cult hit, he would be, he wouldn't give a shit. I asked him that in the podcast and he says, well, because what if somebody wants to give like $3 million to uh, make the next The Room? I don't want him to give it to Tommy. I want to give it to me. It's like, well, the idea is that it's so bad. It's such lightning in the bottle. Like, there's no way you can make that movie again. And who would hire you? You want to hire Tommy because he's fucking Tommy. He's a kook, you know. He's a personality. And this movie, too, actually ties into that because Tommy, for some reason in real life, starts to hate the documentarian and makes these YouTube videos slamming the documentary. Yeah. And it's <laughs> almost like he's trying to promote the documentary. Like, he did this guy a huge favor. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people wouldn't have even heard about it and until those videos. And he was just so vocal about everything. It's like, all right. Yeah, is this some weird, twisted publicity thing? No, I don't think so. Also, how much fun is it to be the guy in the other end of Tommy's abuse? Because you're like, now you're in Tommy's world. Yes. You're part of the room. You're part of history. It's so great. And just, I love that they have to subtitle all the, the conversations and stuff. And it's just like, even subtitled, it's like, wow, this English is just not flying whatsoever. You know, he talks about hanging out with Tommy, but he only talks about it. Like, he has no recordings of it. I thought that was weird that he uh, didn't bother to film the times he hung out with him. Right. That, you know, that was unusual. I don't know why that is, or he just wanted it to be in the moment. But it felt like, oh, I would have loved to have seen that. We did get the, like you said, the um, messages of Tommy yelling at him and calling him all kinds of names. So why didn't recording of anything else? I don't know how they do things in Canada, but here in the <laughs> United States... Yeah. <laughs> Show don't tell. Come on, guys. That was a great thing with the movie, too. The guy critiqued it. He said, you know, in movies, it's show, don't tell. Here's tell, then show. Right. Yeah, I forgot about Tommy um, recording the phone call. He takes it. He says, I'm going to record the phone call, then walks over slowly, gets an old school tape recorder, puts a tape in it, puts it next to a phone. And now, voila, he's got a recording device. <laughs> Suddenly, yes. Clear as day recordings of these phone calls. Yeah, right. Yeah. Clear as day. And, and just the exact moment that you need. Right. It's, it's called a plot recorder. <laughs> right. I, I have to say, I haven't seen The Room nearly as many times as the people in the documentary. I mean, people are saying, like, oh, I've seen it 40, 50 times. I don't know why I haven't uh, indulged that much. But, it, I mean, it's still a little bit painful for me sometimes to try to sit down and watch it. Well, that's because you don't see it with an audience. That's true. I could never see it on DVD. Uh, it's you have to see at least get a couple newbies in there with you, because um, it's a boring ass movie. It's a shitty movie, but with a crowd of people throwing spoons and yelling stuff and pointing out things you never even thought of, it's so much fun. It it, it gets a little like I don't know if this happens at a couple times at bad movie nights. It gets a little like machismo where people are just screaming shit nonstop and you can't even hear yourself think but right yeah so the, i wish there was a little bit more order to the disorder but or you can just listen to the people you like like you can put on headphones and you can dial in like a silent disco to who you think is funny 
But, well, they need like the what's the guy's name? Sal Piero from the Rocky Horror Picture Show to kind of codify what you're supposed to say, and then actually have the script and everything as far as you know the good lines to say to the screen and when to throw the spoons and those kind of things. So he actually organized when people said what. Well, he he was there when it was the audience participation album was being recorded. So people who weren't in New York City when Rocky Horror was going on would be able to get this album and basically memorize the talkbacks to Rocky Horror. So you're in Wisconsin or wherever, and it's just like, oh, now I know what I'm supposed to say to the screen at this particular time. And yes, of course, things would shift and change. And like, you know, in Detroit, it, instead of like, I want to go the distance, we would say, I want to fuck the pistons. So you would like work in local humor kind of thing. But for the most part, what we were saying in Detroit was the same thing being said in New York was the same thing in LA. So yeah, he helped codify what you're supposed to say at Rocky horror. So I think we need something like that for the room maybe too. I, think it's funny. I was bummed out that album. I had it. They left out my favorite line. It was, I saw it in New Jersey in this theater, and the, the uh, usher comes out before and goes, hey, no smoking, no throwing stuff directly at the screen, and no something else. All right, have fun. And then he yelled the greatest lines I've ever heard. But when Magenta goes down the banister, she says, I'm lucky, you're lucky. And then he yelled out, the banister's lucky. <laughs> I was waiting for that on the album, and it didn't come up. But Yeah, that, so the album is definitely not as complete as it could be. They should almost go back and do another one, except... They barely show Rocky Horror, at least around Michigan. I think there's like one place that still shows Rocky Horror. But there are still places that show The Room, which is great. It's great. So here in L.A., I mean, L.A. being L.A., they show it uh, near the college over in Westwood. So every uh, Friday night, and people go get all dressed up. But uh, I've been dying to go for, I need a reason to go now. But it'd be fun. It'd be the old guy there. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to wait and take the kid with you? Or? <laughs> I probably, by the time I do go back, yes. Right. She'll be old enough. Her, or dress her, her up as magenta. Yeah. No. <laughs> She's going to go dress as uh, Frankenfooter. Oh, okay, cool. Well, who knows, you know, these kids today, you can't tell their genders. <laughs> <laughs> who am I to judge? Exactly. So, yeah, I do like the way that we learn much more about the room while we're learning about the way that documentaries put together. And there's a lot of stuff in here that, because, I, again, I was afraid putting this on. I was like, well, I just listened to the uh, the disaster artist. What is this going to tell me that I don't know? And getting all those perspectives from all the other actors I thought was fantastic. And especially the guy that plays, is it, is it Mike, the guy, the me underwears guy? I love it. The guy who that, comes out of nowhere, right? Oh, he was so good. That guy, and then... Also, the guy who shows up at the end at the party, the guy with the weird shoulder and stuff, oh, yeah, he yeah, was yeah. fantastic, too. All right, so the guy who shows up, so if you haven't seen the movie, inexplicably, a guy just shows up in the middle of the film and acts like he's been there the whole time. Right. So that interview with him was fantastic, because he explains everything you want to know about that. Of course, he was hired last second because the other guy quit. Of course, he didn't know what was going on. Of course, he thought he was a terrible actor. Of course, he sucked. And then why was his shoulder like that? And he explains that too. He was in an accident or something. <laughs> he was messed up. It was great. But then the, the guy, the guy looked like Dane Cook. Yes, like, that guy. Yeah, it's so funny. He comes off as full of himself on the documentary as he comes off in the uh, in the movie itself. Right. 
But uh, something about him, even though he does seem like he's full of himself, just was super amusing to me. I don't know what it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very honest. Everybody, especially the the woman plays um, um, Lisa, was just fantastic. I loved it when she's. They ask the great question about how does she feel about being Lisa, and she said, "Right at first, it bothered her, and then she learned to embrace how much because she's never going to get that love anywhere else. It's fantastic." Yeah, she achieved, and this is what the thing about Tommy is: she achieved fame. She's famous, and you know, I, I interviewed uh, not to drop names, but the guy who played Samurai Cop, and his whole life he wanted to be famous. And now he's famous. You know, twenty five yeah. years later, this movie comes out of nowhere on YouTube, and kids love it. He's as famous as he'll ever get, and that's more famous than most people will be. He gets that feeling of people standing up and loving you and wanting your autograph and all that stuff. And well, yeah, it's ironic that they brought up George Hardy because that was the same thing that we get from Best Worst Movie, where this dentist from what is it, Alabama or whatever suddenly sees how many people love Troll Two. And just it blows his mind and stuff. And then, you know, seeing him at the conventions and all that kind of stuff. So it was great that at one point there was a project where they wanted to pair up Tommy and George. And Tommy's just like, not this guy. This guy is totally untalented. <laughs> was that was like, amazing. And what a great producer to think of that. Oh, yeah. God, that would have been so cool to see that. A long time ago, I interviewed George Hardy and I asked him what he thought of the room. I'm trying to remember. It was just a funny thing because he's like, eh, it's not that good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hardy doesn't seem to have much artifice to him. You know, he just seems like a very genuine guy. I literally interviewed the guy from his car phone. Felt like it was a car phone because it was on speaker while he was driving home from the movies on a date. Nice. He had forgotten we made this arrangement, you know, time. And then he got out of the movies and saw my phone call and called me back. And yeah, he was on a date. And so I was just asking about the movies because it was Oscar season. He was just saying what movies were bad and which ones were good. (laughs) (laughs) He's a genuine guy. Like, again, what dentist is getting interviewed by some random dude? Right, right. In next to his cat, you know, under the covers. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, no obligation, Mike. Don't feel like you have to put out because I'm hiding under the covers. Oh, it's okay. I, I, I mean, you know, as long as you buy me dinner. Done. Cheap date. Yes. Um, Sorry. No problem. It's hard to do this with the cat purring and me trying to hold blankets over the mic. <laughs> mine's, mine's usually down here yelling at me, so I'm very surprised she's not here, you know, meowing on this end. Do you get it picked up on the show? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I try to edit her out, but every once in a while, but it still shows. I think people appreciate it. A little honesty. All right, we're going to take a break and come back and talk some more. All right. Thanks, Mike, for that. Definitely check out The Projection Booth. It's a great podcast. His episode version of what we're sharing, he has an interview with the director of this film, Room Full of Spoons, so definitely check that out. This show proudly resents. I'm splitting up. It started out as just a review show for bad films, but I've been getting some great interviews and great responses to those interviews, so I want to do more of those as well. So what we're doing, I split it up to Proudly Resents Presents interviews brothers and present bad movie recaps you can get both on this feed right here that you're using that's fine or go to itunes and look for proudly resents presents interviews brothers and present bad movie recaps uh, while you're on itunes of course give us a great review or a pretty good review 
share the show, let people know, and I appreciate you guys listening. Our sponsor, postage.net. For those two times a year, you need a stamp. All right, we are back, and we are talking about Room Full of Spoons. Now, Adam, you have interviewed quite a few folks from the room. Who, who, who are some of the people that you are uh, proudest of talking to? Well, I talked to Tommy himself, and I, I feel like if I can go back in time, I would fix that. What um, I was asking him as fan questions about the room, and he was there to promote this really stupid um, web show he's doing where he plays video games. So he only wanted to talk about that. And then if I and then I was trying to get him to talk about video games and he couldn't. It's a great interview if you're a fan of Tommy because it makes no sense. Oh, and awesome. I get frustrated. And uh, but if I can go back in time, I would just ask him random questions. What's your favorite cereal? You know, would you ever play tennis with a gorilla? Just to hear what he has to say. <laughs> but it's still a ridiculous interview. But Sandy, uh, I, if you can go back and listen to that, that you learn a lot about the um, the movie. And then you can buy or not buy that he's the director, but. He has great stories about everyone. I interviewed um, online because the person wouldn't talk to me, someone who wrote The Room fan fiction. Hmm. Uh, that was really interesting. It was just a, And the fan fiction is pretty cool, too. But uh, I interviewed Phil Holderman, the guy who played Denny. Oh, hi, Denny. <laughs> and it annoyed me so much that I stopped doing him. Um, oh, no. Because all he wanted, all he kept saying was, when I asked him a question, he's like, "Well, read it in my comic book. You can read it in my comic book." And then, uh, and he says, he, and he does it in a documentary. He just says, "Yeah, you know, and you know, and you know." So I cut a lot of those out, and I found myself getting bored with him. So the interview was a little choppy because I was just cutting out boring parts and parts where he was like, "I don't want to say, I don't want to say." It was so frustrating. Uh, uh, Chris R. I was supposed to do an interview with, and then Julie, the woman um, you're tearing me apart, Lisa. That's how I remember her name. I still might do it again, but they just seem like uh, they would be seem like normal people in the movie. But it, it's just so fun to hear the background backstory of that movie. That's always the most fun, and get your your questions answered. Do you feel like with the room, or maybe other films, maybe Troll Two, it's kind of like you uh, two, like I was, you know, you're really into them before they were big, and now they're now they're so huge. You're kind of sick of it. Does that ever feel that way with this movie? Um, not necessarily, because I've never really felt like I've been into the room as much as other people. Like I remember they they talk specifically about the Entertainment Weekly article, and I remember reading that and being like, "Oh, okay, this sounds interesting." But I hadn't been part of the cult before that, and really it wasn't until I got the the Rift Tracks version of The Room that I sat down and watched it. And to your point, I've only watched it by myself. I've never seen it with an audience, so I imagine that would be a whole lot of different. But watching it with the Rift Tracks on, I was like, I don't think I could ever watch this without <laughs> Yeah, it's just a bad movie. But yeah, you definitely see it with the audience. Oh, I forgot a big one. Um, at the time when the movie came out, you know, they had that giant billboard and I would see that billboard every day driving to work. And so I went, that's why I went to see the movie. And I dragged my friends and I lied to them. And I said, this is supposed to be the greatest bad movie ever. You're going to love it. We walked out and they're like, you're absolutely right. It was fantastic. <laughs> so I was working on a, a talk show at the time. And Kristen Bell was my guest. And she was in Entertainment Weekly talking about how much she loves the movie. So I asked her about it and had her talk about it on Jimmy Kimmel Live where I was working. So she was there to promote a different movie, but I got props to get a DVD from Amazon of the movie, and she held it up, and Jimmy was like, 
Does she really want to promote another movie while she's here? And to be honest, I think she'd rather talk about The Room than her film, whatever <laughs> that was, the project was. So she talks about it, and it's so cool that that's in the uh, documentary. So I really hope that, that worked and got a lot of people into the movie from her talking about it on the show. I remember Patton Oswald being a huge fan. I remember seeing that clip of him with that horrible wig on and stuff. That was a weird impression. I thought it was just mean. I don't know. Yeah. And what's that David Cross at one point? Yeah, a... That was David okay. Cross. That was funny. I, I don't know. I just thought that YouTube video of him, it just just kind of unnecessarily cruel to Tommy. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I don't know why I felt that way. But the, then the, the David Cross one, I just thought was, yeah, it was funny. Um, You know what the movie had? I'm sorry to jump back, but they talk about two big mysteries in the movie. Where does the money come from? And who? where is Tommy was so from? I thought the money thing, I wish they had gone further with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when they're showing those like letters and stuff, and it has fraud and $650,000 and all this. I'm like, oh, there's some really juicy stuff here. I'd like to see more. But I'm like, I'm wondering if the lawyers told them that they couldn't have more in the movie or something. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, you know, yeah, I thought that was really um, interesting. And I thought she was an interesting character, the secret benefactor of this film. Um, this film would have been a great, and maybe it's not too late to do it, uh, making of a murder style TV show because there's so much in this movie. Like every 20 minutes is a totally different show. It feels like there's this mystery of uh, where the money comes from, the mystery of where he comes from, which they get into really well. The talking about how the movie's made, this the documentary's made, and then there's a whole section of this kind of shits on Tommy where everyone says, oh yeah, Tommy made this movie all about him, and they show clips of people talking about Tommy, but that's kind of <laughs> obvious, right? I mean, right. you don't spend $6 million of your own money to make a movie about somebody else. <laughs> if you have an ego, let's use it. Now, I'm sure you read uh, The Disaster Artist. I have to be honest, I have not read The Disaster Artist. Oh, really? Oh, I can't recommend it enough. Actually, I recommend the audio version of it because it's actually Greg Sestero reading it, and uh, he does a, a fantastic Tommy impersonation. Oh, that's hilarious. Now, what did you learn from this movie that wasn't in The Disaster Artist? Um, well, yeah, just all of the different perspectives. I mean, because The Disaster Artist is just Greg's experience, and it's really like it's more of his autobiography, and then when Tommy comes in, it kind of shifts to the Tommy story. But at the same time, he's just like flabbergasted the whole time of like, just it, the, just this like weird jealousy stuff between Tommy and him, like where, you know, he put together um, like a reel to take around in Hollywood and everything and had all of his clips and all this kind of stuff. And the next thing you know is like Tommy's making a reel and, you know, he's reading Shakespeare. Next thing you know, Tommy's reading Shakespeare. Like uh, they showed a clip from the commercial uh, where Tommy's like dressed up and it's like to be or not to be. And he's like, yeah, he did that because we were talking about Shakespeare. This is just, it, just this weird like obsession that Tommy had with him and stuff. And it was very single white female esque kind of thing. So what I found from room full of spoons was all those other perspectives because I was just getting Sisteros from his book, but uh, I really do recommend it. It's a, it's a great, great read. And I would say that the two things really complement one another rather than like, well, if you read one, you don't need to see the other or vice versa. I think that they really uh, pair well together. Why do you think Tommy shunned this documentary? Well, I think probably for a few reasons. I mean, he mentions James Franco 
in the the yelling phone call in, in one part. So I have a feeling that there's probably some like legal agreement as far as they're making the disaster artist movie and you know you can't be involved with any other projects. And then I'm not sure, maybe just for fear of, you know, other stuff coming out or, you know, if Rick is there digging deep and getting this information about Tommy's backer and about his real name and where he's from and all this, obviously he doesn't want any of that stuff to come out. So maybe at that point he was just like, Hey, you got to knock it off. I don't want this stuff. It it needs to be sanctioned. But by that point, I think he was already in bed with Seth Rogen's company and it was just like, no, 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 stop it. I mean, but that's just all conjecture on my part. Yeah. I think that you're right. There's two things happening. One is there must be some kind of legal thing. And then the other is, uh, the other is Tommy just feeling sandbagged that the truth is going to come out. He didn't realize that uh and i don't know why he's hiding that he's from poland or or sorry spoiler alert oh geez he's hiding from where he's from but uh i guess because he wants to be american so badly which is another great i'm so glad they showed clips from rebel without a cause i didn't make that connection at all no i didn't either even the you're tearing me apart lisa thing i was just like well that's kind of like the you're tearing me apart but those other things with the chicken and all that stuff i never made that connection for some reason right like why is he pushing him over the ledge right uh, God, Sandy um, said in my interview that he quit because he didn't want to do the sex scene. <laughs> and then, <laughs> when, but it kind of Sandy's story kind of fits the other people's stories where he's saying like Tommy, once Sandy quit to do a real movie, he was dead to Tommy, right? And that's what everybody was saying that that happened. So that part I believe, and then he took his name off all the credits. Yeah, I can see that, and I don't see him. You know, I imagine he would give Sandy like a script supervisor credit, if even, and but no way would he give him a director's credit. Well, I think that's what he would have gotten if he just kept—I was to say—kept cool, but just did whatever Tommy wanted. Right. Yeah, and it's a non-union movie, so you have no recourse. So you're doing this. Yeah, you know, everyone's doing this movie out of greed. So, like the idea—the idea was that Tommy was a sucker, and he was buying all the stuff from a rental house. Yes. And they needed somebody to shepherd along, so they got Sandy, who who at best was available on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> you know, in terms of his uh, talent. So it's, it's kind of shitty. They took advantage of a guy, you know, full of his money, uh, come to L.A., but accidentally made this great film, which is great. I'm so glad Sandy was there. I'm so glad all those elements were there. Well, I'm still really curious as far as, how much of it is them like seeing this guy as a sucker and how much of it was him just voluntarily like, Oh, we need this thing. Go buy it. Or like just those weird decisions. Like I still, the, the video and film thing (laughs) shooting at once that just always perplexes me. And that is like, when I heard that the first time I was like, you gotta be kidding me. There's no way. And I'm thinking like they're doing some sort of like amazing thing with like mirrors and setting up like one lens for both things. It's like, no, no, no. They're just locked next to each other, two cameras. So they're slightly apart. So you can't necessarily shift from one to another without it looking like a jump cut. And, and also the quality of the video at that point, particular particular time was not that of the film and i'm just like oh why why would you do this it also gives the movie this unique look that no other movie has yeah yeah it's amazing this kind of just off center just a little bit not in frame and there's a reason for it and yeah it, it makes 
It's another happy accident that makes this movie so great. You know, they could somebody could have said you could have uh, you can just rent this for a dollar instead of buying it for a hundred. Right. But right. no one's that's that dumb in LA. They're like, fuck it. <laughs> and I'm sure people walked home. I don't know what happened to all that equipment. That's what I was thinking of as a former production manager. Right. With all that stuff. Who's who's re renting that stuff out? Yeah, or did they try to sell it back and they're just like, Oh sure, we'll buy it back for, you know, five percent of what you paid for it. I'm sure, yeah. That's probably what it was. It kinda cracks me up because in a few weeks we're gonna be covering Ed Wood on the show. And one of the things that has come up about Ed Wood is that he kind of wanted to pretend to be a director. Like he didn't necessarily care about anything other than the making of the movie so he loved the whole idea of you know yelling cut and print and these kind of things and that's exactly what tommy felt like to me was this whole idea of like he likes being there on the set and yelling cut and print but having no idea about the rest of it you know because you see him yelling action and these kind of things but he's not really directing the film so it's, it's just like he so much feels like he's pretending to be a director and pretending to be a movie star and God love him. He kind of became that, but you know, just for all the wrong and weird reasons. Yeah, but he did it. He did exactly what he wanted. Like he oh, should yeah. be thinking everybody worked in this film, the, the weird thing in, in Lisa's neck. He should thank everybody for making this movie that now he's a superstar. He's an international superstar bigger than most people will ever be good or bad and and he did it so he gets credit for not being a director at all but i don't know just being an art he is an artist he's an amazing artist he's a performance artist he's playing this character he gave himself a mysterious background it's pretty amazing it always kills me though when people talk about the worst movie ever made Uh i mean you've seen a lot of bad movies and i've seen a lot of bad movies and when people try to say like oh this is the worst movie ever made i'm just like you really don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it's definitely the best worst movie ever made. Like, it's so much... F- it, it's not. It's a good movie, you know, by default. Yeah, a lot of people, like, I would book uh, weird talent for shows, and, like, their talent is not being talented. Right. And they're so not talented in such a good way, because there's so many bad movies that are just unwatchable. There's enough of those that don't go anywhere. Uh, I saw one called... And I'm sorry if this person happens to accidentally listen to the show called uh, The Karma Police. And it was about a guy who gets mixed up with the karma police who literally do what you think. They get revenge on people who do bad karma. And they spend half the movie convincing this guy they're real. And so we believe they're real. And then he joins them. And then he finds out they're not real. So you're like, first of all, the guy's a terrible actor. He's got eight moles on his head. Uh, you know, he obviously wrote, directed, and stars in this thing. And so the fact that they made us trust the movie and then took that away from us, like no one told them that when they read the script that that's not how movies work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, it was it was like the Spanish prisoner, but not good. <laughs> A talentless Spanish prisoner. So that movie, I guess that movie was fun to watch. I was just very, like any Adam Sandler movies, like they're painful to watch. Yeah. Yeah. They're not good. They are, and it was so funny. There's a whole section where people are like, "Well, the movie was lit well, yeah." And oh, and they and they it sounded good. So it, some of the interviews they do in this documentary are from Skype, which looks good. I did it for a TV show I was working on. I had to do all these pre-interviews. I was in my bedroom. Nobody like like now. I guess I'm not very more professional now. 
But anyway, he interviews the sound guy, and everybody looks and sounds good. The sound guy's wearing this headset, and he sounds awful. He sounds so bad. I know. I was just like, how ironic. <laughs> He's got like a Radio Shack Fisher Price headset on. And I'm like, what? The sound guy doesn't have a better microphone. He can't at least like record it separately, and then you sync it back up later. You know? Oh uh, no! Or at least use the. I think some people are using the computer mic, which works Not much board, better yeah. than that. <laughs> I'm glad and you the noticed. other guy who's the Skype interview, he's got the fan in the background. So then, with the way that Skype doesn't record every frame, it's just like I'm like obsessing about the fan over his shoulder. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I was wondering about that. Yeah, yeah, I was like, it looks weird. And that's why yeah. Yeah, it was a very uh, mom, um, the room moment. And yes. also his picture, the director's picture in picture, he's on the bottom. That happened to me once, and I was just able to go on iMovie and uh, crop it out. But he left himself in, and I felt like if he knew that, he probably would have used more of that person's interview. <laughs> yeah, I was glad they talked about the post-dubbing uh, post and everything, because that always cracks me up. There's a lot of post-dubbing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, almost the whole thing. Because you, you can hear that kind of sound difference. Like, talk about on The Apprentice, when Donald Trump would talk to the, the people, all of a sudden his voice would be completely different with a different background. Right. Yeah, and then they cut back to him finally going, okay, now go off. <laughs> <You know>? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Heidi Klum gets that a lot on uh, Project Runway, too, where it's just like, all of a sudden, it usually seems to be like the... And you have a chance to win $25,000 worth of cash and prizes. I'm like, did she just record this once and they just throw it in on every episode? Like, good take, Heidi. Don't worry. We'll use this from now on. Right. When she's reading the script, does she pause and wait beats for that part to finish? Right. Because you want to read it again. I've read this a <laughs> hundred million times. Yes. This is where the producers are cut it in. Right, guys? Yes, Heidi. Yes, Heidi. <laughs> no one will notice. No punk kid in Detroit is going to ever say anything about that. Don't worry about it. But that's what that whole movie was. It's great mistakes. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad they talked about Lisa's neck. That's my favorite. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I was just, I, I kept waiting for it. I was like, oh, please, somebody talk about the neck. And I was like, is she going to, is she even going to be able to talk about the neck thing? You know, does she know about it? <laughs> There's one scene in the movie in the room where, and it's almost like out of airplane. You know, where her neck while she's talking just bulges at certain points. And you couldn't plan it better. You couldn't write a comedy. If you were to do a movie that was supposed to be the world's worst movie, you couldn't make that up. No. That's why this movie is so good. Yeah, nobody in the writer's room would have said, like, and what about this thing where the lead actress's neck has a character of its own? Yeah, there's a scene in an airplane where uh, this guy is being attacked by a dog in the background. <laughs> yes. And the joke is supposed to be that it's the world's kindest dog. <laughs> and like who knows that right but it's just funny to see a dog you know attacking another person that's what it reminded me of that scene like i don't know it's just so funny yeah there was it's so unintentionally great and that's yeah they do say is he just good at ac falling into accidents maybe because this is an accidentally great movie yeah i've tried to watch tommy and other stuff like uh like the Tim and Eric show or that um, house that dripped blood on Alex and some of those other things. I'm just like, yeah, it, it, he's now like so self-aware of what a horrible actor he is that he just like goes way beyond. Uh, I, I preferred more the sincere 
you know, him trying to be sincere in the room and then just getting those horrible results. Now he can just be bad on purpose, but it just doesn't ring true to me. It's like Birdemic. Like you can't Birdemic two is a piece of shit because the guy is trying to be bad. Right. Just make another good movie and then it'll come out badly. Trust me. And we'll all love it. I heard that he was a pain in the ass on Tim and Eric to work with. I can't say that I'm surprised. Yeah. He's in um, Samurai Cop 2 as the bad guy. I still need to see those movies. Yeah, me too. I have to see that one. Um, Maybe we'll do another episode. Sounds good. Well, hey, if you want to find out more about Roomful of Spoons, go to roomfulofspoons.com. That's all one big word. And you've got uh, previews, uh, some screening notices, news, all that kind of stuff. You can link over to their social media and keep up with them. Uh, see the pretty amazing uh, poster that's going on with that. And if you want to go over to Proudly Resents, I think the URL is what? Just proudlyresents.com, right? That's it. Or wow. at Proudly Resents. I know I got it, people. I'm the one who got it. At Proudly Zen's on Twitter, and then reach Adam at Mac.com. What's your URL? How do people find you? Well, I couldn't get projectionbooth.com, so it's projection-booth.com. The woman who owns projectionbooth.com is like, no, 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 I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to do something. I'm not sure what yet, but I'm going to do something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think she still has a Hello World page up, so that just kind of kills me. Yeah. Her geosites? Bunch of dancing gnomes. God, I wish I would appreciate that if there was like the coming soon, yeah. the little animated gif of the guy digging. That would be pretty cool. So, yeah, go ahead, go on over to proudlyresents.com. There'll be more in the show notes for this. And if you go over to projection boot.com, they'll probably be the same thing. They'll link over to all the old episodes of Proudly Resents where you talk to some of these fine folks. I can't read, can't wait to read more about the uh, fan fiction here. Oh, yeah, that was cool. And the person who wrote it is kind of a kook. So that was kind of fun, too. Awesome. And there's a well, link to the video game, too. I didn't talk to people who made it, but there's a link to the game. That game is freaking phenomenal. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, if you're ready to waste, like, a day, go on over. Because you're just doing the movie. Yeah. It's so much fun. And I loved the 8-bit score for it. I mean, that was that was the other thing I really liked was the interview with the composer who actually seems to know what he's doing. Yeah, I, yeah, but it's still terrible. It is. Oh, uh, it's so it's so oh, that's another thing I want to say like watching this movie and everyone's kind of all the actors and they they're kind of shitting on Tommy and and the movie and everything. They're all terrible people. Ter- <laughs> I mean, not they're good people, but they're terrible actors, they're terrible at everything they do. That's why they're there. And that's why right. the movie's so good. You know, like, they're like, oh, and then Tommy said this and that. Your performance would not have been any better for Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> the lighting was good because there was good lighting people. Yes. You know, like, the acting was bad because you were 19 and you had never done this before. This is why you've never done anything else. And that's fine, you know. This movie is what, it's just a moment in time and it's so great. Well, thank you very much, Adam, for coming on the show, and I guess thanks to me for coming on to your show. Oh, thank you very much for coming on my show. Uh, you're always welcome. I told you you'd be on my show. <laughs> I finally came through. <laughs> I'm such a Just in a very strange way to do it. Um, what's the other shows that I've been on with you? We talked about um, The Punisher. Yep. Eating Raul. Death Race 2000. Oh, that's a great movie. Yes, it is. Ah, those are people in a bad movie who went, all went on to do great things. Exactly. Well, Sylvester Stallone was just nominated for an Oscar. 
Oscar nominee. And you think, was David Carradine ever nominated for an Oscar? I wouldn't be surprised. I'll have to check on that one. Maybe an Emmy? Maybe a Kung Fu Emmy? Oh, God, yes. Kane was just kick-ass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. So, And your show is great. And uh, what episodes should people look out for if they the first-time listener? Um, you know, I, I like pointing people back to the Night Moves episode, the Gene Hackman movie from the 70s. I really like that one. And we just did one on Looker, the Michael Creighton movie. Uh, I really had a good time in the discussion with that one. Uh, and we have to, I just thought of a movie today I was hoping you to cover, but do BDO, do you ever hear that movie? You brought that up to me, and I have since acquired it, so we definitely need to do an episode of that. Oh, I'm very excited. Uh, maybe you can find a director, because you're good at that stuff. I could not find him. I try my best. So that sounds like uh, one for 2017, because you know how I plan ahead way too much. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. You, we scheduled this four months ago. Exactly. I was still living in an apartment. I, was in, I didn't even have a kid at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I was a grandfather, but I didn't have a kid. Right weird how that works yes adam that we're, we're out of time for this interview thanks for listening to proudly resents make a comment or suggest a film at reach at mac.com or on our comment line you ready get a pencil <laughs> i'll wait Okay, got one? Okay, 646-481-5476. Keep it clean and short. We might air it. Join us on Facebook or be old school and go to our website, proudlyresents.com. If you like the show, put the episode up on your Twitter, Facebook, stumble upon, dig, you know, all those things. Tell a friend, I'm Eddie Pepitone, and my Twitter account is at Eddie Pepitone.